This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Welcome to 2024. I hope everyone had a great holiday, and now it's time to get back to the grind. To kick off the new year, welcome Alice Teeple, multidisciplinary artist whose recent manifestation, Solve et Coagula, is currently on display at the Shelter Gallery in Eldridge Street, New York City. It's going to be up until uh, January 21st, so please, if you're in the New York City area, find some time to go check it out. Before we get started, I'd like to shout out the rest of the horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse. Kicking the week off, we have Brandon Legion with Horror Wolf 666, followed by Jackie Smith into the Necrosphere, the greatest metal podcast on the internet. Midweek, I come at you with Everything Went Black. Followed by my return with Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid with Necromaniacs. Rounding out the work week, we have Spitball Media featuring Mike Scandato's brother, John Draper. Saturday is a day off. Sunday, Carl Hikara deploys Soul Knox, a show dedicated to all things macabre, esoteric, and weird. Carl and I are currently doing our collaboration Darkness Weaves, which explores the work of Carl Edward Wagner. Our newest member, Cheyenne of the band Trivax, comes at us with Iblis Manifestations. So we continue our war on mediocrity. If you enjoy the show, please share on your social media, tell your friends about it, give us a five-star rating, all that stuff matters. So thanks for joining us uh, this evening, Alice. Much appreciated. Um, nice I got a chance. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's great. You know, um, so Salve a Coagula, is that the correct, correct the pronunciation for that? Sure. I only took one semester of Latin, so that sounds good to me. Yeah. Lat whenever you use Latin, it airs a certain level of gravitas to, uh, to a statement. You know what I mean? It sounds more ominous. <laughs> yes. Yes. We like ominous. Yeah. Uh, so before uh, we get into that, um, I'm always interested to find out, you know, a little bit about people's backstory, uh, you know, the environment that they grew up in, how they ended up where they are, and things that might have uh, influenced them, especially when I'm talking to someone who is, is embarking on uh, a creative uh, pursuit. You know, you can kind of piece together if someone's like a plumber or pipe fitter or something like that <laughs> like what you know okay right. great i grew up in a working class environment and i pursued the same sort of things that everyone around me did but uh from my understanding uh you grew up in uh in a, a more rural area 
of uh, Pennsylvania. Right. So when I, th I think of that, you know, having traveled fairly extensively across the country, having been around certain rural areas and trying to uh, square that sort of environment with someone who is pursuing something that is a little bit more uh, sort of esoteric as the stuff that you're doing. So how do you get started? What was it like growing up in like a, a more rural town? And how did you find the inspiration to do these creative pursuits? Um, I've always felt like an alien no matter where I live. But um, I grew up in the middle of Pennsylvania, which is Center County, like very literal there, um, the east, eastern tip of Center County, um, in a very farm farm-like area. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Amish farms, a lot of uh, just, you know, small family farms uh, where I grew up. And um, my, I, I did grow up in a working class family. My dad was a laborer at Penn State. He worked um, on different crews, um, you know, to renovate buildings or set up for concerts, you name it. He did a bunch of stuff. And my mom was a school teacher for years. Um, so they always encouraged me to be creative from day one. Like, I, I think it's just always been something that's been ingrained in me. So, you know, we might not have any money, but they'd give me like a ream of paper and a box of crayons and just be like, do what you want. And, um, you know, so my early childhood was really uh, isolated. And, you know, we lived kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I didn't really have much outside interaction with kids. Uh, it was mostly just like my parents, friends and, you know, people we'd see out and about. But uh, I was pretty isolated. And um, so that really allowed for my imagination to grow. And then when I was in first grade, my dad took over this little museum in uh, Aaronsburg, which is where I'm from. And, uh, you know, my, my dad actually had a degree in, um, I forget, I think it was, uh, he had two, two degrees, history and political science. Uh, so he'd started working on the labor crew as a means to, you know, just put himself through school and, and he liked it. So there was never like really any differentiation between like academic pursuits and stuff that you enjoyed. Like my parents just kind of did what they wanted. And um, that's definitely how my life's gone as well. Like I've just kind of, you know, I never really had like a set path for anything. So yeah, that's, 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 kind actually, of that's actually a pretty healthy way of raising a child. I think, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I mean, you know, in my experience, it just uh, it was kind of the opposite of that, really. Just, um, yeah, you know, very traditional kind of background, like middle class, sort of working class vibe, blue collar uh, expectations put on, you know, people in certain ways. And it didn't sound like that was something that entered into your early life, which is like pretty healthy, actually. Yeah, not my early life. Um, I, I think that started kind of creeping in when I got older and I kind of put it on myself like, OK, I better figure this out. But uh, I, I, there's always been a lot of artists in my family here and there. Like my great aunt was an artist. My uncle's an artist, um, you know, but they all always kind of went the commercial route or the academic route. And um, I tried that for a while and it wasn't for me. So um, on, on either counts, I, I think um, as far as like being an artist goes, I think you're just born one. And then, you know, you have the good fortune of either having that encouraged in your life and you get to pursue it a little bit, or it can get stifled, I think, in a lot of people's cases, or they feel imposter syndrome for something that's really stupid. <laughs> you know, I, th I think it's something that needs to come out of you. 
So were were you aware of the difference between like high art and like, you know, or like, uh, you know, classics or things like that and like illustration? Like what did you kind of experience yeah. that thing all at once or did it sort of come in waves? It came in waves. Uh, I mean, I my parents always just let me do whatever I wanted when I was really little. And then when I started kindergarten, I had a really uh, restrictive teacher who just basically slammed out any like mode of creativity from all children. It was it was an awful um, juxtaposition. And my parents really fought hard to help me keep, you know, an even keel with that. And like, they'll be like, well, you know, do whatever you can to shut your teacher up. But like at home, it's okay to draw the way you want. And, um, you know, there's always been that kind of push pull of, you know, what people say you, sh you should be doing and what I, I instinctively want to do. Uh, so I'm all over the place as an artist. Um, but uh, as I got older, I had a really great art teacher in elementary school who, you know, she got me like Mark Chagall. And, you know, she would like send me to the library and say, look up this artist. And, you know, like there was no judgment of like what was high art or what wasn't until I got to college. And then it was a lot of snobbery. So I've spent a lot of time to just kind of unlearn what I learned in college. Yeah, I'm not a, you know, quote unquote artist. <laughs> but, yeah. But I, yeah. I know a lot of people like that have, you know, traveled similar paths. And uh, one of the benefits they did say about getting a formal education, though, is that it did open them up to things that they may not have found on their own, which oh, I, I can yeah. see a lot of value in that for sure. Totally. Yeah, I, I lucked out. I, I didn't take a BFA route. There was there were two paths you could take at Penn State. And I luckily took the path that was integrative arts, which basically was like this Montessori approach to college. And it was, you can take classes outside of art and mix it with art somehow. And instead of like taking only painting classes for four years, you could take a writing class or you could take, you know, like a science class if you want to be like an illustrator. Um, it was the most wonderful thing that could possibly have happened for kids like us that you know, had a bunch of interests and, you know, maybe talents in certain things, but uh, didn't want to be pigeonholed. And of course they got rid of that program years later, <laughs> but I had a great advisor, Bill Kelly. He just, you know, he's like, do whatever the hell you want. And, you know, he, I, that freedom allowed me to really expand my own interests. And when I was in college, it was right at the dawn of uh, the digital age. So, you know, I'm a Xennial. I was born in 79. We were indoctrinated with computers from like kindergarten up. And so I had like no fear of learning new technology by the time I was an adult. But I also had that kind of adult perspective of, you know, what, what, what can we use this stuff for? You know, they gave us all of this technology and like, they didn't know like how to like teach it to us. We had to kind of self-teach ourselves how to be artists with this new digital technology. So I've been using it, um, it, it's weird. I've been using like images from the past, like from my museum childhood and mixing it with, you know, very new technologies and effortlessly, like I th they're both part of my life. So it's never been just like an aesthetic choice or whatever. It's like, I, I actually used to play with a stereoscope as a kid, but also like would play Carmen San Diego, you know, so uh, yeah, I, I feel like I'm bridging two worlds all the time with my work. Well, let, let's talk about the museum bit because you were talking about how your your dad, uh, you know, ended up, um, I guess, I uh, was running running the museum or curating or or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it was just like it was like a basement of a church, you know, like 
it was um, basically like the dumping ground of all of the valley's, you know, historical objects, but it was a lot of farm equipment, um, stuff from the one room schoolhouses, old photographs, mostly that I really latched onto. Um, there was an old pump organ. There was like a, a dentist set. So like my sister and I would play down there and, you know, interact with these objects. Like that was our toys, you know? So and my parents were very much like, you know, hands-on education people. So, you know, that really sparked my imagination as a kid as well. Um, very unusual, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think, I didn't even think about that until I got older. And I was like, man, that, that was weird. <laughs> well, photography, especially from like, you know, early 20th century is like, yeah, that's like very interesting stuff like i i have a oh, collection yeah. of photographs that i've accumulated that i found in like basements of houses i've lived in and things like that and mm -hmm. uh yeah it's like these these fragments of time like these yeah. like viewports into someone else's past and uh yeah. and i'm just trying to connect that with like your your current work that you have right now um, right and, yeah. yeah so i would i would look at these images constantly and wonder like what were these people like you know what did they do what were how different were they from my life you know some of them were related to people i actually knew you know there would be like their ancestors and i'd be like oh wow that looks like you know mrs bird down the street when she was young like it's it was um it's interesting because like a lot of the people in my town when i was little were all elderly so you know, I'd be like riding my little bike around and just hanging out with like the lady down the street who was like 80 years old making quilts and, you know, like it's a, it was like a real time warp. And um, so I think that really informs how I make my work today and in any capacity, like if I'm doing video or photography, it's um, I'm not necessarily like married to a certain aesthetic, but that that's something that I'm, I'm always working with. Um, if it's even like the process too, like I'll, I'll shoot like digital pictures and then, you know, process it in a 19th century style dark room or I'll, um, use antique cameras to make something or I'll, or I'll use, uh, you know, like old types of film process. Uh, I got really interested in alternative process photography and I like the, the ease of shooting with digital and, and knowing what you get, but also the crazy experimental nature of it. All the photography stuff, was that something you learned on your own or was that something you studied like, uh, you know, the technical aspects of that as part of your education process? I was too broke uh, in college to take the photography program. So that was also the appeal to take on um, integrative arts because they provided all of the computer labs for us so we could experiment with stuff. Um, and I didn't get into traditional photography like through college. I had a work study where I worked in a dark room. So I learned like how to process film there, but it wasn't a formal class. That was that was like take pictures of professors and then like, you know, process them in the sink. You know, like it was very bare bones, but it gave me like a good idea of how to how to do that, like chemical process. But that was all on the way out by the time. I was done my college career. Like nobody wanted to do analog photography anymore. They thought the darkroom's dead. You know, this is this is all going to go by the wayside. Nobody cares anymore. So people were getting rid of their cameras and film and stuff left and right. And I was like, I see the value of this, and I'm going to like hold on to it because I think ten years down the road they're going to have a change of heart. And sure enough, lomography started coming out, and they would be like, here's here's like reproductions of this stuff. 
And, you know, all of a sudden people started having a more appreciation for these old processes and they treated it more like an art form rather than a means to an end. So, um, rambling a little bit, but yeah, it was, it's, it's been a very odd, like time trajectory of, of just like how these images are created versus like, you know, what the zeitgeist says, all that stuff. Yeah. That stuff always seems like just like alchemy to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's awesome. One, yeah. Like one, one of the, I mean, I can relate to that primarily through music because um, mm -hmm. that's mostly what I do is music and yeah, talk, talking to people, you know, but the um, yeah, even like recording on analog tape, uh, you know, and yeah. the ironic thing though, is like people will try to model rooms and things like that and circuit paths and all these different, you know, amps and stuff like that electronically yeah and the, the the actual room still sounds better you know what i mean it still very has similar. more character yeah yeah it's very yeah. similar it's i think music and photography have been sort of like the bastard children of all of this technological revolution um you know we had certain ways of doing things for years and you had like the purists that are like oh i'm not i'm not accepting anything new and then you have the people that are tech heads that are like oh this is all you know out the window we don't need this anymore and I think the real artists are the ones that can see value in both and work together and creating these sounds. Like, you know, I write for postpunk.com and a lot of the bands that we um, review are really either um, embracing technology from 50 years ago, like using old synths only to really get that 80s sound or, um, you know, they're using Ableton in their bedroom and creating these amazing pieces like that wouldn't have been able to have been done like 30 years ago, unless you hired like a studio for a couple of weeks. So um, I think there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, on the digital stand, you know, front with, uh, with music, it's like now by yourself, you can create so much material. Um, and there's yeah. a lot of freedom in that. Uh, but yeah, like a combination of the two things, like, you know, the analog world and the digital world, I think really that's kind of where it's at, you know? I mean, one yeah. platform kind of complements the other, which I'm, it seems like that's the same case with visual arts too. I think so, yeah. Um, I remember when all this stuff started coming out, people were really freaking out about it. Um, you know, like I'm at the tail, I'm in between Gen X and millennials. So like, you know, you'd have kids still in high school that were, messing around with stuff and excited about it but didn't really have much perspective and then you had gen xers who were slightly older that were really suspicious of all computer stuff and then they were facing um you know already i guess a job shortage because they were trained in school to only be able to do stuff an analog way um so, you know so a lot of them had to completely change career paths within a couple of years of graduating it was it was weird um, I think that really echoes today. Like, um, I don't know if we've really quite reconciled any of it. It's just like, we just kind of move forward as artists, musicians, any of that stuff, and just kind of adjust it as things have gone and come up. It's going to take a quick sidebar here. So you, you write <laughs> for postpunk.com? What's that? Are you a writer for postpunk.com? Yes. Oh, wow. Had you had just a little quick side side path here how do you get into writing that's like uh you know like out of necessity, I, you know, something you just enjoy doing one of my many uh 
uh, paths in life. My parents are both writers and it's just something natural I've always done, um, had a knack for. So that's one of the things I've always been interested in. What what was that the style of music you're mostly into is like, you know, sort of post-punk dark wave kind of, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, electronic music, that sort of uh, vibe. I love all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I listen to everything. And when I say everything, I mean, like, you know, Curtis Mayfield to like classical to country music. Like I, I like all of it, um, except for like, you know, certain genres, like I'm just not connecting to. But um, yeah, that's largely what I, I write about. And um, I think uh, it's been really rewarding because, you know, it's interesting to talk to so many artists and, you know, hear their process and think about like what's what's really going on. And a lot of the stuff that we cover is underground. So, you know, you don't hear it on the radio. It's not top 40. It's all the good stuff that people are craving, but it's hard for them to find an outlet. So somewhere along the line, you moved to New York and yeah. uh from Pennsylvania. So what what was your impetus? I mean, that's a pretty self-explanatory uh sort of question. Oh, really obvious question, but uh, Oh, I so was what, running away. <laughs> what brought you to New York basically? I ran away to New York. I I taught at Penn State for a while and it was really bad and um there was a few incidents that just broke me and I was like I need to I need a fresh start. I can't be here. There was no no room to grow there and uh it's a hostile environment. So <laughs> why not come to New York? But it's been wonderful here. This place has been, I mean, it's been really hard and I've, I've like, it's, I've had a very challenging path here, but um, I'm very happy to live in New York. I love it here. Did you have something lined up to do out here? Or you just like rolled up, you know? Oh, I rolled and up. I, I, my friend and I stuffed everything in a Jeep Wrangler and I tore off. Like I sold everything I owned. Um, moved to an eight by eight bedroom in uh, Flatbush for a while until like oh, we had we had like a lot of problems there. But I've just bounced around sublets for the past almost decade. But I mean, it's even that in the like, Oh, I've lost you. Even even just moving to a city like that you know, with no real plan is kind of like an odyssey in and of itself. Like I've, I know many, many people. <laughs> who, oh yeah. I'm moving to New York and then they show up and they last for like six months and they're like broke or something horrible happens to them or they get robbed. They're like, you know, they get hooked on drugs or something like that. And the next thing you know, they're like gone like in a year, you know, less than a year. I think so the, because I was older, I was 35 and I'd been through a bunch of shit already. You know, it was easy. I, I mean, relatively speaking, um, Alex Baker, who runs Post Punk, he said the other day, I had I had a tremendous amount of tenacity, and I it, he meant that as a compliment, and I think it's true. It's it's like I'm I'm here to do my work, make friends, enjoy my life. Like, you know, when you have like certain things that happen in your life that kind of inform what you'd rather be doing with it. Um, you know, in my case, I got hit by a car, and um, I was just like, well, I could go at any time. So what am I going to do with my life? I don't want to waste it. So I think that's been like the main, main driving force for my work. Yeah, I guess like discipline distractions, you know, in New York City, because, uh, you know, I've had many, many experiences with band members and people who, oh yeah, you know, they're, they want to 
do this and that. And, you know, they're, and they're talented too, you know what yeah. I mean? And oh yeah. They're just, uh, fine. They get on the wrong path, you know, and then it talent's all wasted. And, it's uh, a shame. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that countless times and it's, you know, it's awful, you know, but I think also the situations that people are put in right now, especially financially and, you know, emotionally COVID happening and all this awful stuff happening in the last 10 years, it's been tumultuous. And I don't know, people also need a, a means to self-soothe, I guess. Um, it, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I, yeah, I could see it as that, but also like, how much more would we accomplish if we had situations where people like could thrive, you know, <laughs> like where would yeah, we be society? There, there's like uh I think a fine line though in some ways between like um resistance and uh you know I I hate to say that but it's because I I you know I I suffer from uh being under the yoke of resistance sometimes but yeah. in some ways that sort of motivates you to to push in a lot of ways even though it's stifling and at times um you know you, you feel like you're drowning but there's a certain level of extremity that I think benefits people who are doing something creative you know yeah I think so I mean it's a lifeline for many of us certainly um you know I'm not really somebody who's very confrontational and if something's gone on in my life that I feel awful about a lot of times I'll just make something uh, as a reaction rather than like deal with it head on um I would say that my work is probably an addiction uh I, I tend to jump into it and it's like a, I don't know, dissociation kind of thing. Um, you know, if my exhibit that's up right now is um, kind of the culmination of the last two years. And, you know, I look at it on the wall and I'm like, holy shit, Alice, like, <laughs> that was intense. And then, you know, it, when you have like something tangible to look at, um, it's, it's, it's humbling. <laughs> All right, so now it's a good point to start talking about salve a coagula. Right. No, nothing new can be built without breaking old patterns. Yeah. Now, is that, um, that a literal I, translation? Is that a literal mm -hmm. tra translation yeah. of that? Yeah, I would say it's probably as close as it gets. I mean, it's it's a phrase that's been used a lot over the years. I, it's a, the title of a Tuxedo Moon album. Um, you know, it's it's a philosophy that has been my life the last 10 years. I, I tore my life apart to move here. Um, you know, I, I have done it over and over again, every time I've moved, every time I've like tried something anew, um, you know, and I think if, if you know anything about tarot, it's like the tower card, you know, you're tearing everything down and it's like the death card, you're moving into a new transformation. Um, but there's nothing there that like, you can't create something from, I feel, I really do. And, um, you know, as bad as it's gotten over the years, it's never been so bad that I can't just like find time to kind of think about it and and put that in my work. You mentioned tarot was too. What's that? I your your microphones. You mentioned uh, tarot, like the tarot deck. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, is that does that figure into your work at all? Um. Not directly, but I mean, my friends and I do readings for each other. <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, that's, uh, 
I wouldn't say that I'm uh, accomplished to that stuff, but something I'm, I'm very much into all that esoteric sort of, you know, yeah. knowledge and all that. I think that there's a, a big use for it. I think it's a good way to help you. Uh, it's, it's like a guiding force, you know, it's not necessarily like, woo, with the spirits, but it's also a way, it's almost like somebody said it was like, a form of psychology for people who can't go to therapy. You know, it's like if you let like divination kind of pull your way through and you kind of take yourself out of it, it helps you kind of reassess where you're going or what's happening in your life or really, you know, step out of yourself for a little bit and, you know, think about something that could uh, be better for you. I think that's how we all treat it. I think, I think it's interesting to get familiar with the, you know, the, the, the cards themselves and the imagery on it and really study like you know what the community what how it's trying to communicate you know and also yeah. just like you know magic in general um you know is is uh not like pulling a rabbit out of a hat but like meditating on something with intention you yes. know as opposed to casting spells and you know that that's not really uh something i think is um at least in my opinion um valid shall we say but like to use certain symbols and um there's power in certain imagery and being able to um like i said meditate on something with intention and use visualization and that sort of stuff and that's what i think oh, is yeah. probably very powerful in creative process absolutely I, that's really a great point it's uh that is something that i definitely um put into my work you know it's like um if you think it you can manifest it so I think all artists and musicians do that um regularly that's that's literally what we're we're creating something out of nothing or you know uh things that we have in our you know immediate we're creating something out of nothing essentially um and sometimes it's directly from our own minds sometimes it's reflecting something we see. Sometimes it's, um, you know, just commenting on what we're experiencing, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all part and parcel of that. So now um, I haven't had a chance to see uh, the pieces that you have shown should be, that are being shown right now. Oh yeah. We uh, haven't really photographed them formally yet. <laughs> okay. All right. So I, I'm not like late to anything, right? No. <laughs> All right. All right. So how, all right. So let's, let's start. Where, where is it showing and how long is it being, being uh, hung? We just had our opening. It's at the shelter gallery in uh, Chinatown, New York city at one twenty seven Eldridge street. Uh, shelter gallery is just a lovely space. It's, you know, uh, right kind of on the fringe of Lower East side in Chinatown, like right on the border. Um, and it's showing until the 21st of January. So this is uh the this is the the kickoff episode of Everything Went Black for 2024. So there's plenty of time for people to go out in the New York area and check it out. Awesome. Uh, so now there's this in the description. It says 19th century morning practices. Right. I'm completely unfamiliar with that. So what what is that? So uh, especially after the Civil War, but right around the time Queen Victoria lost her husband um, in the 1840s, there became a like a real formalization of public mourning. Um, you know, it started off sort of of a fashion statement, uh, almost like Queen Victoria would get these elaborate dresses and everything would be black and 
uh, there'd be jewelry specifically made or, or certain kinds of gloves. And there would be a lot of um, almost like Jane Austen style manners of like, you know, how long you were, you were to wear these garments or how long you were supposed to be in mourning, depending on how close you were to the person who passed. So if it was like your husband, you had a year or something. Um, but there became this whole industry that wrapped up around this, uh, around death, because, you know, people died more often and, you know, younger. And um, I think people had nowhere to really put that grief. So they created objects and they created um, space for people to put that. Now, that wasn't true for everybody. I think it um, really depended on class and all that other stuff as well. But there was a sort of language that people understood that um, when you lose somebody, there is a time period where you have the freedom to um, process that loss. And we don't have that today. You know, like it's it's something that's really devoid in our culture. It's like, you know, I, I know people that lost their parents and, you know, their job would be like, well, okay, come back on Monday. Or can you get this done before the funeral? Like, like literally have that happen to them. And I think it's horrible. I think it really messes us up as a society, especially after COVID, like all of us lost people. And, um, you know, we, we are grappling with, massive massive loss and there's nowhere really to put it and so people are like fighting each other online or you know just going after things because I, I feel like there's a lot of sadness that they don't know where to place it and they'll just like throw it or project it onto other people that's why yeah, that's that's my, that's my take on it no that's that's interesting and you know and, and it's it's like one of those great mysteries in life you know what I mean like yeah. uh you know, when, when, uh, you, you look at someone like who has passed away recently and you, you kind of like ruminate on the idea of this person being alive and then now they're just like material, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like, where does that essence go? Like it just vanishes into this great vortex to never to come back, you know? And yeah. it's like in, in our, in, every society has their own way of, uh, you know, dealing with that, you know, and yeah, in our society, I just feel like, you know, maybe we're just completely out of touch with all these things. And, um, yeah, now it's interesting about, about these morning practices from the, that's the Victorian era, the 19th the uh, century. Era. Yeah. yeah. Especially it really took off after the civil war. And then you'd had the spirituality movement kind of come around the same time. People are desperate to, you know, make contact with their lost ones. And, you know, there were so many people lost in such a short amount of time. And um, I'm fascinated by just how people coped with it. And this is where, you know, my childhood came in. It's like, you know, I, I really was interested in all that because we had that stuff in the museum. We had a funeral bonnets. We had, you know, memorabilia cards that people would hand out at funerals. We had like fans from funeral homes, like really like it was just weird by our standards that like you know like a funeral home would be advertising on a, like a calendar <laughs> which is kind of kind of awesome but also just like wow that's grim you know like are you gonna make it to the end of this calendar like it's it's just weird but um you know these these are things that I kind of grew up with I remember um I was talking about this with my dad recently when I was like maybe third grade there was this girl that I knew in school who I was at her house 
And she was like, oh, we have this photo album from the 1800s and there's like dead kids in it. And, you know, I didn't know anything about postmortem photography at that point. And she shows me these pictures and we're just like, Ew! and, you know, we, we run around the house, like, you know, scared of these pictures. And then I remember asking my dad about it. And I'm like, why did they do that? And he said, well, you know, it was really special to have your picture taken, you know, 150 years ago. And some people couldn't afford to do it. And then somebody would lose their kid. Um, you know, they would die, or, you know, they'd get sick or they drown or something. And sometimes those photos were the only way to remember that person. And, you know, so pe people did that, you know, they would take photographs of, you know, the dead and it would be like the only photograph they had of them that became these really powerful keepsakes. And now it's like big business of like antique dealers are like, buy this postmortem photo. And, and I'm a little like, I'm freaked out by that. That's weird to me, but. Yeah, that, that is a little ghoulish actually. Um, yeah, it's like, a, ew. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that that's heavy, man. If you think about the only time someone's been photographed was yeah. when they're dead and not in their you know, vi vitality of their life, you know? Not only that, but they paid big bucks for it. Like that would be like the equivalent of paying like $1,500 today to have your photo taken. Um, you know, one photo of somebody coming in, you know, with their four by five camera, a horse and buggy to photograph, you know, your dead uncle on, and it, like, they're like laid out on an ice, ice box. It's, it's really gruesome, but I think we're also really removed from death. Like that was normal to them even though it was horrible and they still felt the same grief, like that was a lot more normalized. Whereas today it's just like, you know, I don't, I think I was like an adult before I saw my first dead body, you know, where that, um, where that removed from something that is so, that happens to all of us. And I, we don't want to think about it. I don't know when it became so sanitized. I would say probably it started in the fifties after the war, I guess. I don't know. It's like both, both sanitized and like, you know, then you'd have like Vietnam or you see people dying live on television. Like it's, it's really weird how like the, the business of like the funerary practices have, have shifted. I don't, it's, it's like, it's a huge umbrella thing. No, you bring up a really good point because, you know, these days, uh, you know, people film all sorts of, or all sorts of violent, things where people get killed you know there's oh, like, yeah yeah you know, all, yeah all the various conflicts that are going on in the world right now you can see you know video basically live of people losing their lives you know horrible and, you know like back in the 90s there was like that bud dwyer uh suicide clip i remember that, that. Know, everyone yeah. had a you know had that on some vhs tape and stuff you know oh yeah my uh my godfather was a state representative of pennsylvania and i mean he knew bud dwyer um, I remember when that happened. I remember, uh, just like, I would say maybe 20 years ago, some band came through state college and they had written a song about him. It was, it was weird. I was like, wow, that's, you know, it, it was, I think the song was like his last words, like, this is going to hurt somebody was the title of the song. And I was like, that's Bud Dwyer. I know that. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to have you on a VHS tape with like a survival research labs, uh, you know, like clip and like crash worship and stuff like that and yeah. then uh, and the bud dwyer uh suicide like uh segment oh, yeah there was also it was, like christine chubbuck i think was her name that was the first person who did it and then it's like it's like the movie network like they, they saw that movie and were just like oh that sounds great i'll do that 
um I think right, also so too, like like um creepy pasta that kind of yeah. thing of just like watching that in the early internet and just like the titillation of seeing these horrible images that also was a phenomenon that a lot of people have forgotten about like that was a very zenial and millennial kind of thing it's like you have really young people just like going on the internet and seeing like you know so and so's heroin overdose like it was that was weird <laughs> it's um that that's like an interesting thing in society and the with the internet you know and it's like yeah. i mean back before the internet you experienced the world with all with just your 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 tactile like senses like you take things in through your eyes you smell stuff you feel things with your hands uh but now there's like this um almost like infinite uh cachet of media out there and experiences that you're removed from you know what i mean and um oh, it's yeah. distancing it's very distancing in a lot of ways but also uh maybe desensitizing a little bit because you're not experiencing it firsthand and i, just... I would say so yeah that's a really good point like we're only sensing through visual and audio basically we're taking out the smell element we're taking out like you know the taste of bile coming up in your mouth like those things are visceral reactions that you would see you know like like say you actually did come across an overdose which you know i have done and like the actual experience of that of seeing that right in front of you is just like holy shit and then you know like you see it on on an internet picture and it's like you know just another day i'm just gonna scroll through here's another cat video it's it's messed up that's like really the the biggest strangest phenomenon to me is like yeah. Within within a matter of seconds, you can expose yourself to like such a variety of different images. Like you're saying, a cat video, beheading, yeah. like an ad for like you know whatever shoes or something like that. Yeah, so that's yeah. literally the TikTok experience. It's it's like a Russian roulette of all sorts of bizarre stuff. I don't know how that's going to affect people down the road. It's it's very attention, attention expands. I imagine because people's attention yeah. spans, you know. But also short just like day. our capability of empathy and understanding, you know, like the the whole of an experience. I, I think that's really um something that people are glossing over, maybe just because it's too awful to think about. Right, so now the experience we're talking about Victorian mourning and uh postmortem <laughs> photos. So how does this aggregate of things and you're into your work right now with what the pieces that you have the pieces that i have are um a, a, a mix of different kind of media so i my mom and i created quilts um and then i used uh cyanotype fabric which is it's fabric that's coated with certain chemicals that are photo photosensitive um so you can make you know a digital negative and process it in your bathtub. It's very easy to do. Um, and the fabric looks really cool. And I thought, well, what if I made objects, you know, out of these fabric cyanotypes? And so my mom and I um, made quilts and um, sweetheart cushions, which is like, a. these were things that like British soldiers created for their girlfriends and sisters back home. They were um, like tokens of affection. Um, so yeah, the British army, encouraged embroidery at one point um there, there was uh a, i made a stereos a set of stereoscope cards 
um, with photographs that I took of two friends. Um, I did um, just paper sculptures uh, and all of the photographs are taken in places of, of sorrow. So um, I went with my friend Joseph Keckler up to uh, Letchworth Asylum uh, and we shot a series there and we wanted to do something kind of more about the elements. So um, there's a lot of symbolism in the pictures. And then my friend Adrian Sexton and I did a series in Greenwood Cemetery and Trinity Cemetery up in Harlem. And um, so those three places were all pretty much where most of the pictures are, were shot. And then I also did a series where I was like in my childhood uh, part of Pennsylvania. So a lot of self-portraits as well. Interesting. So much death. Like what, what is uh, the fascination? <laughs> There's with, no fascination. Uh... I think it's, it's more of like, um, I don't, I don't see death as an ending. I see it as an, a, like a doorway to something else, a transformation, like the death card in the tarot. Um, I mean, we've, we've all certainly lost people in our lives and we feel that loss, but I never sense that that's the end of something. I, I feel that that energy continues on as something else. So it's not necessarily seeing death as like a morbid situation. I wanted this collection to be about healing and acceptance of transformation. So, so that's, that's more yeah. of a, more of like a, um, something to help soothe people that are still left behind in that's this, right. uh, in this realm that we're in right now. Absolutely. Yep. This is about, um, our own deaths that we have every day when we ch change into something new and we, we grow as people. I see that as a form of death. I see, um, we, I created a series of embroidered body parts that my friend and I wired with led lights that respond to sound frequencies. So if you play a certain Hertz tone, like a certain light will light up. Um, or we have, I, I made a embroidered heart where, um, if noises get louder, it beats faster. I wanted people to um, have objects that they could touch and interact with rather than just look at on a wall and feel sad. Like I wanted people to hold a cushion or interact with the stereoscope. Um, you know, find, find windows of um, connection. And that was a big process for me to like go, like at the opening, I, I wasn't quite prepared for how much people were connecting and so you know i have like two years of my life kind of invested in all these objects and it was really weird to see them go from a pile in my home to like people really feeling something with them um and it was it was moving you know like i i wanted that was exactly what i was hoping for was that you know regardless of what the intent was of what i when i created them i wanted to see how people received them and it was it was beautiful so all these pieces are, it, you know, they're, they're being shown in a gallery, but is there, there, there seems to be like a lot of um, like this might lend itself to some kind of uh, project where it's being captured on video or something to, to really get the full experience of people who can't go there firsthand. Is there any plan for that sort of thing? Uh, yeah. Usually Rachel, uh, the gallery owner and Tyler will do, um, you know, like a, like a thing, you know, like they'll have like an online gallery tour. We just, I, I haven't done that yet. Um, we literally just had the opening. And um, so they documented all the pictures 
you know, that are there, all the objects, but I haven't, I, I think, you know, there will be something on the website, I, I would imagine. So that, probably right now would be a good opportunity to uh, get the information out there for people who want to, um, like the best way for people to follow your work. Oh, yeah. Um, Instagram. I know. I don't know if anyone uses, uh, you know, Facebook or anything like that anymore. But um, Instagram. It's just Alice Teeple. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I do have a website. It's just alicetiple.com. I I keep it simple. Is the website something that that uh, gets a lot of traffic and the people can can people see some some of your some of the stuff current like some of the current work on there? Um, I haven't put it up on my website yet, just because I don't have like great images yet of, of all the objects. Uh, I could, there wasn't a way to photograph them in my home, you know, like flatteringly, um, you know, you need like a white wall and stuff. I just, I didn't have that space here. Um, but I, I will, as soon as, you know, we get all that sorted out and it's, it's up on my Instagram now, like from the opening. Thinking, you know, the artist more from Excuse me. Uh, your 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 computer, your microphone. Yeah, the artist uh, Mark Ryden. I don't know that person. A lot of his stuff, it's he has like a YouTube channel, like with all this like mo mo motile like pieces, like things moving and uh, stuff is very. Um, this is what's coming to mind, like when you're describing this stuff, how it really lend itself to like some sort of like, cause I also see that you're a video producer, editor. Okay. Um, and, and that's like, I would love to see something like that. Some piece that sort of incorporates all this stuff as like, you know, some video piece or something. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just haven't had the time, but I, I love to bring elements of visual um, like, or like video to my media. Like one of the ideas I had was to have a video night at the gallery. I don't know if we're going to do that or not, but um, I did a series for this band called Cyborg and Muck. They needed projections for their concerts. So I did a series in Greenwood Cemetery. Don't tell them, but I did. And uh, they, uh, they they were all kind of connected where um, people, the, the I used Adrian again. She was my model for the thing with my friend Rhiannon. And we I just filmed them in two different cemeteries. Um, you know, doing like walking around and stuff. Um, and I thought it, it kind of tied in beautifully with what I just put in the exhibit. And I thought it would be kind of neat to do like a video project projections, but you know, I'm, but I'm a mere mortal. So <laughs> like it's, it's hard for me to do all that stuff at once. So you do this, uh, this is like work for hire sort of stuff too, right? Oh just yeah. Like, that's that's like my bread and butter. <laughs> People, oh, that's what you do primarily is video editing and and photography yeah photography okay yeah yeah like on a commercial level no this is this is like you know bands hire me um oh. i'm not like hired by you know like vogue or anything i'm just i'm i'm mostly just kind of operating working with ind independent artists um you know probably why i'm still living on like lentil soup but <laughs> Where, where I feel I feel creatively fulfilled and I, I don't feel exploited. I feel like I'm, I'm doing like a lot of fun collaborations with people that I like working with, which I feel is a pretty good. It, it feels it feels good to do that as opposed to like working in academia. Cool. I didn't realize. I didn't, I didn't, 
pretty cool. So what were some of the uh, projects that you, you know, your favorite projects or something like that? Um, I just did this really fun video with um, my friend, um, her band's called Primitive Heart. And we just, we just did a video up near Beacon um, and we shot around there. Um, Beacon's beautiful. Like that whole area of the Hudson Valley is just, everything's gorgeous. And um, so we did a video up there in, um, in Letchworth Asylum again. Um, and that was fun. Uh, a lot of photography jobs. I, I really just, I, it's, for me, it's about connecting with the person that I'm working with and just seeing like, you know, what's your vision and what can we do together? Um, I can't think of anything like specifically offhand, but that, that one up in Letchworth was fun, so. Demos or material beforehand, sort of that's how you come up with the images, or is there a, is there a more of a collaborative process with that? Um, for the most part, they let me have free reign because they kind of know what my style is, and then they'll give me the songs that they they want to do the video for, and you know I'll listen to it and just think about like oh you know what's the vibe here or, um you know what what visions pop in my head. Um, you know, sometimes it, it's very clear and other times it's, I need a little bit of a help in, um, you know, directing that vision. It, it, like David Lynch said, it's just, it's like a, a big stream of fish that kind of swim through. And sometimes it's a, it's a big one. And sometimes it's just like a little minnow, but, um, I, I try to be more instinctual <clears throat> with my work, you know, that kind of thing, instead of going in with a big plan, cause shit happens, you know, sometimes like you know, the weather's bad or, or something else comes up or, or something comes in that's that you didn't plan for. That's really cool. Yeah. Sometimes it's funny uh, that I, I'm the kind of person who likes to um, have everything outlined, you know, and, yeah. and uh, demoed and everything planned out in advance, you know, and everything is like, you know, completely, it's not fun by the time you get to do it. Cause all the, fun has been beat, beaten out of it already by the time we get around to actually recording something or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but there is a lot of, uh, like impromptu, like on the spot creativity that happens even in such a restrictive regimented approach that I have with music and other oh, things. Oh, totally. Like yeah. yeah. I, I see that as like a gift, you know, it's like sometimes something pops in. that's just like, I didn't plan this, but I love it. It looks really cool. Or, um, it enhances something. You know, I, I, I love welcoming them that kind of thing. All right. So before we, uh, we part, uh, give us the rundown of, of the show and like where it's located and the dates and where people can, can find information about you and even the website for the, for the gallery too. Sure. It's, uh, I believe it's sheltergallery.com. Let me double check that. Oh, it's shel uh, shelternewyorkcity.com, uh, shelternyc.com. Salve at Coagula runs from December 15th, 2023 to January 21st, 2024. It's at 127 Eldridge Street. And um, yeah. Oh, it's also running with another show in the rear gallery called Precious Otherworld. Um, so I want to plug them. They're really sweet people. Um, but yeah, that's that's where it's at. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And I'm going to definitely uh, take a trip over there to check this out. Probably after oh, the great. I didn't realize you were in the city. I live in Jersey City. So oh, it's amazing. Like, kind of like living in New York, but uh, close enough. No, nah, I mean, I lived in Brooklyn for like uh, 
several decades and I just relocated out to Jersey fairly recently. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, it's going to be great. Looking forward to seeing it. All right, Alice. Thanks a lot. Pleasure talking to you. Great talking to you. Take care. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye.